This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, I'm Becca Barker. Welcome to Banana Fish, the official podcast of the 2019 Animation Festival of Halifax. This season, we'll be focusing on animation and labor. What kind of work is involved in animation? What motivates independent artists to take on such intense, painstaking work? And so many other questions. As well as being one of the organizers, I'm also lucky enough to be curating our retrospective screening at this year's festival. The subject of our retrospective is celebrated Canadian animation artist Stephen Woloshin. His work I admire a whole bunch. Stephen's unconventional approach to animation has garnered him acclaim from so many festivals around the globe, and he's won awards such as the René Jodoin Lifetime Achievement Award, the ASIFA Award, uh, two Governor General's nominations, and right here in Canada at North America's largest animation film festival, the Ottawa International Animation Festival. Stephen has also authored two books about cameraless or direct cinema filmmaking, Scratch, Crackle and Pop, a whole grain's approach to making films without a camera, and Recipes for Reconstruction, the cookbook for the frugal filmmaker. Stephen will be joining us in Halifax this year for the festival. The retrospective screening of his work will be on Friday evening, May 10th, 7 p.m. at Carbon Arc Cinema. Stephen will also be giving a special workshop on Saturday, May 11th at noon to encourage more artists and art-curious folks to try their hands at direct cinema. It is so fun. But the festival is still a couple weeks away, so today Stephen is joining us by phone from his home in Montreal. Hi, Stephen. Welcome to the show. Hi. It's my first time talking to anyone in Halifax. Well, not the first time talking to anyone, but like publicly. Uh, so as you can imagine, I'm pretty excited to go uh, to be there in, in, in May. Yeah, we're super excited for your coming out. And we're so happy that you had the time to come out to our little city for, for a weekend and, and do so much while you're here. Well, that's it. I'm going to pack a lot in. But, you know, like uh, the, the nice thing is that I just can't be idle at a festival. You know, it's really nice to just like dive into the deep end and just like do a whole bunch of stuff and like really get into the spirit of it. Yeah, well, good, because that's what's going to be happening. <laughs> um, so at uh, AFX this year, we'll be programming a retrospective screening of your work. Excellent. And uh, you'll be giving a, a workshop as well, right? Yeah, and this I, is, I think, mm, yeah, sorry. I think what, I'm sorry. What I, what I think is really good is that the the two work together. I mean, um, it's, it's just like the books. You can't really get an idea what the workshop is going to be like unless you see the films, and vice versa. Seeing the films, you really get an idea how they were made by doing a workshop. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like two sides of a coin, and they really work well together. Mm. So can you tell us a little bit about what cameraless animation is and like how did you decide at some point aha like this is how i want to make films well i think uh well for the end to the first part i mean cameraless animation i would call it more direct cinema because it's uh, all the, the the forms of cinema that require hand uh, manipulation and uh, artisanal methods to make it happen uh it's a non-optical way of looking at cinema it, it's basically like in a, the simplest case, it's moving painting. And in the most uh, complicated case, uh, it's also like a kind of a bricolage with moving images. 
uh, which is like a collage of bits and found parts and and, and objects. And uh, I think what really attracted me to this was the uh, the idea that um, I when I was uh, in uh, public college, I saw examples of films that were made with nothing. Films weren't made with people who couldn't afford cameras. They couldn't they couldn't um, get complicated tools, but yet they managed to make moving images. And I said, well, if, you know, if this exists, I, I want to try it. You know, and at the same time, I was making documentary films that were a total failure because <laughs> you know, so much of it was like badly shot or I had to throw it away. And I said, well, rather than throw it away, I'm going to see if I can try to recycle it back into, into a, a working film. Like, you know, the cases where you forget to take the lens cap off of 100 feet of film. Well, <laughs> that, that's like the raw ingredient for a, a, a piece of direct cinema. Just, to have, just having 100 feet without any uh, interruption, you know, without having any image whatsoever. And, and that's like the, 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 the basic ingredient of making optic, you know, like of making direct cinema. Right. And just for context for our listeners, um, I mean, you began doing this at a time where it, that was the typical way of filmmaking was still on celluloid and using that, that sort of plasticky material that had 24 individual images per second for live action film. Uh, and a lot has changed since then. Um, ha- has any, have any of those sort of uh, material changes or technical changes in, um, you know, typical filmmaking practice affected what you do as a direct cinema uh, animation artist? Well, uh, you may find this funny, but actually it's opened up um, a lot more of the tools that were uh, prohibitive or uh, too expensive to buy or uh, in, 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 not, in not a great abundance. It means that as more people have abandoned uh, synchronizers and projectors and the reels, it's become easier for me to acquire them. Uh, there are so many uh, what they call the crow's nests of, uh, of uh, uh, you know, in the back rooms of cinemas, you know, the, the projection booths where so much of what the projection is needed that they don't need anymore. And they just put it on the open market. Mm. And, and people say, well, it's so hard to get this stuff. And they go, no, it's actually easier. I mean, nobody values it anymore. And, and it's like nobody even knows what half of the stuff is. So it's like, OK, give it to me. I'll, I'll take it off your hands. Um, yeah, I mean, I, um, I've, I've noticed, uh, in the last little while there seems to be, I mean, there's nothing more irritating than a middle-aged person like myself talking about what the kids are into, but, um, Uh. (laughs) I, I did notice that, um, my students more recently in in university age students, typically university age, um, are are kind of finding a new fascination with direct cinema, hands-on filmmaking, cameraless techniques, um, because the whole, that whole way of working is just so, so unknown and so foreign to them. Uh, I mean, have you noticed any sort of um, differences in your audiences over the years? Has there been uh, different types of interest over the years? Well, I think what, uh, what I, I find interesting is that uh, like when I do workshops with people that are in, in their teenage or, or in their early 20s, they, they say, look what I can do with nothing. <laughs> and they have like a, a, an app that turns photographs into, into GIS. And they have like uh, maybe one foot of, of film material. And they literally refilm every frame. And they said, look what I can do. And, and people, 
and they do it for for like the responses. You know, like people are saying, well, "How did you do that? I've never seen it before." I mean, uh, what, did you use a tablet? What? And it's just like <laughs> suddenly they become a center of attention for doing something very very simple. Mm-hmm. You know, like very uh, off beat and very uh, um, like uh, off the rails kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love it as sort of a new discovery when it's a new discovery for somebody. Yeah, and there's a lot of people out there. And uh, I remember uh, doing workshops in Barcelona last October, and uh, I introduced everybody to the idea of uh, of recording what they do with uh, the Stop Motion Pro app, and they turned it into like a kind of a on the spot digitizer for you know handmade film, mm. and I go. Well, and, and they loved it. And everybody was making like little loops and GIFs and posting it and cross. I mean, in a lot of cases, it kind of stopped there. But they, I think they discovered that they can interest other people in a very, very simple way of, film, of making animated film. Mm. Um, let's talk a little bit more about your work, though. Um, having seen quite a bit of your of your work, um, sure. I'm hoping it's fair to say that uh, it seems you explore ideas related to language and musical rhythm and sort of musical language, I guess, as well as personal experiences and family relationships. Um, mm-hmm. Is that fair to say? Yes, because I'd say a lot of the films. I think my family is the is the is the basis. Uh, of a lot of the subject matter of the films, even though it's not obvious, even though I'm not saying this is about my family, this is about this person, it's kind of like I am making the films in their presence and, and, and they're either in the next room or in the same room. I'm showing it to them first. And I, and I think, you know, the focus is the people around me. Mm. Are your kids into it? Uh, they're not into doing it, but they're they're into the fact that, you know, like dad is, know making another film and oh wow he's showing it publicly so i think they're into that stuff now nice nice so do they ever give you like a critique or anything because i know my son does for me <laughs> yeah, yeah they, like, t- they say look like turn it off already <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah but they are but they are interested in to to i i think it kind of kind of propelled them into like picking up pencils and doing stuff for themselves so that because as I show them what I do, they feel um, bound to show me what they do. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciate that. And it's completely different in a lot of cases. My, my oldest daughter started like drawing with ink on her hand saying, I don't know why I'm doing this, but what do you think of it? And I go, well, that's really interesting. I like how the ink is smudging on your hand, mm. you know? <laughs> so they're just like, yeah, I kind of like that too. You know, so we're showing each other stuff, although we don't know why. Yeah. <laughs> I think the best thing we can do as parents is normalize art for our kids. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and let them know that everything they do it has a has a valid reason and, and you know and they shouldn't be ashamed of trying new things even though it looks, you know, like 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 smudges of ink on your hand. It's mm. you know, it's something that you've done. I, I, I think you shouldn't be shy to, to share it. Mm. Um, so in your own pieces then, um, you know, I, I'm curious to know, like, why why you express these sort of concepts you're interested in, you know, about language and rhythm and, and family. Um, like, what do you get by um, using tools of drawing and scratching and working directly on film? Like, what does that kind of technique allow you to express maybe that that other other methods might not for this kind for these kinds of ideas? 
Well, I, I think one of the, 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 the principal things for me is that it was done like a diary. That I, here I am working uh, with not only the, the method of cinema, but the proximity to, to me and what interests me that I could just walk up to the, the animation table, express something that's on my mind, be it a foot long, and then walk away from it, think about it, walk back to it. So like it, it, it's like an ongoing diary. Mm. And, and I think that, you know, music is part of that diary. The rhythm is part of the diary. And the, certainly the markers and all the other tools are part of it as well. But I think that you could walk back and forth, you know, like when, you know, when, when the mood strikes you. Mm. And I think that be very important. It's not about setting up a schedule or, or setting up a place. It's all about, you know, like responding through, you know, like through material to what you're thinking and feeling. Mm. And mm-hmm. you, you work so intuitively then. Um, but I, I mean, I've noticed in your work too, for example, diff- you have different kinds of animated movement happening in, in different works. Like some of them, uh, like uh, Casino or Fiesta Brava, for example, sometimes you follow typical sort of principles of animation and you convey, you know, these sort of what we come to expect in animation and cartoons, like illusions of weight and volume and elasticity. Um, and, and then in other films, you really stretch the the definition of what animation can be. Um, films like Babel, The Babylon Palms, uh, La Dolce Vita, RH Factor. Um, so, you know, um, how do you reconcile your relationship with animation or the word animation? How do you think about that? Well, many years ago, I, I, when I think it was probably when I started uh, my MFA in Montreal, you know, I said to myself that, that you know, a film is like a recipe. And, and if I'm going to be writing a book about what that, recipe, like, what that recipe was, it doesn't make sense to, like, do a recipe for a hamburger with, you know, like a white seed bun and then a hamburger with no seed bun. It, they all should be really distinctly different recipes. So I can look back in, in, in time and say, okay, we did it, uh, well, I did a film like this, which, which was like very cartoony, and this is, was the result. Or I did a film that was all fingerprints, and this was the result. Mm. I want every recipe you know, like, and, and every concept to be different from each other. So I can look back and say I, I, that I, I, I had so much, how do I say it, like, I tried some, so many different things in broad strokes, you know, like I tried, uh, you know, I tried doing this and I tried doing that. So when the third book comes around, I get to write about something completely different. It's mm-hmm. not going to be rehashing, uh, it's, you know, being uh, like uh, acrylic ink on clear leader or this or that, or, you know, a needle on, on, on black leader. I want every film to reflect its own um, um, methodology or its own uh, workflow, you know? Mm. I'm, I'm enjoying these mental images of you, Stephen, um, like using an immersion blender on film and maybe yeah. braising some film. Um, yeah. It, it kind of like the metaphor really goes with the idea of using leftovers too in these, you know, these parts of films that are now discarded by so many other people. Yeah, well, I, I think that there's a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of meaning in what we leave over. I, and I think more than the meaning of the image itself is um, how we ingest it and how we think about it. And once, and once ingesting it, how we spit it out in our own words. Like even if it's uh, images that we've seen a million times before, you know, it, it's just like we all take it in individually and what we all spit it out individually, mm-hmm. you know? And, and I think that to me is very important. 
that, you know, we're all different. And I think finding film and reusing the film is a really good indication of how different we all are because we all can use it different ways, you know? Mm. Yeah. And after so many workshops, I've seen so many people do so many different things with film. It's just really inspiring. Yeah. I, I've, I've noticed too, like you bring up this idea of, um, you know, uh, you're saying ingesting, but before that, you know, sort of um, finding or um, digging out, you, you know, you, you take the long view, I think, um, mm -hmm. and thinking yeah. of how these images sort of reside, you know, in perpetuity, possibly, um, you know, in the, in the long term. And I, I know you have another role uh, yeah. at uh, working at the National Film Board and, and I, that you actually are going to be giving a talk, I think, based on what you do there. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and if that uh, sort of inspires anything in your own practice? Well, that's, again, like the flip side of my life. You know, it's like things to do at home, things not to do when you're, in, when you're, trying, to concert, when you're trying to conserve film. You know, so it's like uh, I think that talk is going to basically – I'm going to treat it the same way I treat my films in, in my books, which is basically to say, here are the principles that will make conservation possible. Uh, and maybe not why we conserve, but maybe, yeah, maybe why we conserve, you know, like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like dialogue between your, your, your conservators is important, you know, like handling is important. Like it's just going to be a simple hands-on discussion you know and I, and I think that's what we lack and I like there's a lot of people that I met are very academic about their approach in conservation but this is a hands-on approach and I think unless you've got the materials to conserve then it is all academic you know and, and I think it's about time that we start talking about okay we have a lot of people a lot of institutions who have a lot of films you know, they know how to talk about conservation, but still the films are rotting. And, you know, like in many cases, should they rot? You know, hmm. they are they're obviously uh, were made by a manufacturer to, to rot and to be replaced. But, you know, we can't replace them anymore. And we don't, but we also don't own them. So why are we conserving things we don't own and we may not have the rights to show? So it's like all these dilemmas that come up in conservation you know, and it's just like, it kind of puts us in uh, the conservator in the middle of it. Like, why am I saving this? You know, so I don't, it's going to be like a little potpourri on like the do's and do not do's of conservation. Mm. And then, and to be clear, that's, that's part of what you do at the National Film Board. Yes. Yes. Mm. It's the do's of conservation. And it's all <laughs> No. <laughs> Thanks for clarifying that you do only the do's in your job, not the don'ts. Yeah, yeah. Don't do the don'ts. <laughs> if they catch me doing the don'ts, that's a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, in, in the meantime, there are a lot of things that are tossed because they are, um, you know, they, they are, they have reached, you know, the, the, the critical mass where they're no longer, uh, uh, they can no longer be, you know, they can no longer be appreciated for what they are, because the material gets in the way of seeing what they what, what they were meant to be when they were produced. Mm -hmm. So, like, at what point do we part with some? No, uh, like when do we when do we call it? You know, when do we call? You know, like 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 the patient died. You know, when when do we say it's enough? You know, the projector doesn't want to show this anymore. Mm. You know, and that's part of it. You know, and 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 I think uh, in my personal practice, there is no the end of the road because for every 
um, because for every error, every problem that time has made, time is the issue. Memory is the issue, you know, and, and we just use that into the, into the, uh, the, I don't know what you would call it, the, into the vocabulary of what we're doing for experimental filmmaking, mm. you know. Mm-hmm. But, of course, in conservation, you don't want that. You know, you, you can't have that, uh, that, um, that, that viewpoint that, that uh, time is a, an issue. Supposed to be timeless, you know. <laughs> supposed to be as good as it was when it was first shot, you mm. know, hundred years ago, fifty years ago, whatever. I guess it gives another an alternative meaning to the term time-based art. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And and the more you're reminded about how things have decayed, you're more aware of time. You know, yeah. you're more aware of the uh, of the problems. <laughs> I just, I'm just watching somebody I uh, walk right by me with like rolls and rolls. Of oh my gosh! You're yeah, you're coming you're coming to us live from the NFB as we speak. Of course. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> of course. I'm looking at scanners in one room and uh, but anyways, I digress. When the door opened, I kind of like lost sight of the question. That's okay. You've answered it very well. Um, uh, I I actually just have. Uh, I mean, this actually leads us to. Um, Probably our last question today. Um, you were talking about that sort of language and, and what enters the vocabulary. We've talked about language in your work before. And I came across something that you said once in an interview about the relationship of the word amateur to yes. love. Yeah. And I was wondering yes. if you could talk a little bit about that relationship in your filmmaking. Well, I, I, I think I, I learned this as being a student of experimental film and, and that of Stan Brackage. And when I, when I looked at his um, filmography, and uh, he did many, many films, uh, some of them that were just done in a day, done in the morning and afternoon, some that took many, many years. And, and he did the things like, like I wanted to do, of just waking up, doing things for your family, for the love of film. And I think that's where the Latin word of uh, the word amateur comes from. It's from the word love. You're not doing things uh, as a, as a commission or as an employee or as a, you know as a, uh, or you're not doing it for an award. You're doing it strictly for the love of something. I mean, how many painters paint? You know, for the love of stuff, you know, like I'm looking at my own kids now that are drawing on paper. Nobody's telling them to do that. Mm-hmm. Nobody's paying them to do it. They do it because they love what they're doing. And I think we all got to hold on to that just a little bit longer. Doing things for the love of it, the love of a, of a rainy Sunday afternoon, you know, with a, a roll of film in your hand or a sketchbook, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the kind of spirit I want to bring to the workshops, to the, to the screenings, to the people I meet in, in festivals, that there is a way to maintain the love of what you're doing above all else, you know? Mm-hmm. I, it, it has a, uh, I mean, I think it resonates, that idea resonates so well with one of the main themes we're, we're going to approach or deal with in the festival this year, which is, um, you know, trying to talk about labor and labor in animation and um, a lot of times invisible labor um, and uh, and respecting labor in animation. And, and I love this idea of 
thinking about what we do as artists as labors of love and keeping the love in it. Um, but it's also a labor that never ends because you're oh, yeah. always <laughs> reflecting on your work for the rest of your life. Even once it's done, you still look back and reflect and, and, and ask yourself what the next step in the dialogue is. So it's a labor that never ends. You know, whereas a commission or uh, when you do things for uh, for work, it's a labor that ends as soon as, as it ends, you know, as soon as you get fired. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I've heard it said artists don't retire, they die. So yeah. <laughs> um, you're making money, you're just borrowing it. Right, right. Um, but I find this so interesting because sometimes, it, and I hear this around in animation circles a lot, there's a sort of misunderstanding about, you know, artist-driven work as somehow being less, you know, professional or legit than industry work. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, I hear that too, but I mean, less professional is one thing. Maybe less polished is often the case because uh, because of the resources that an independent filmmaker has to get something done. I mean, but then again, polish is not our problem. Now, when you look back into even the the you know the Hollywood's greatest films by today's standards, they're not polished either. But mm. we still appreciate when the time they were made by the people that made them. Uh, they reflect, uh, you know, like the, the sociology of their time. Uh, and like you look at the, the neorealists, I mean, or, or, um, or the direct cinema of Quebec, you know, like it, it reflects, you know, what you can achieve with what's around you. Mm -hmm. You know, so mm -hmm. yeah, I, I mean, polish, polish is not my problem. Polish is in history will judge what is polished or what is, I don't know, honest, dishonest, you know, uh, you know, mm -hmm. completed, not completed. History will judge that. I don't think we can judge each other on that. Well, it, you know, if you're talking about, you know, doing a lot or being able to do what you can with, I, I'm trying to remember the exact phrase you used a second ago of um, doing what you can with what you have around you. Yeah. Um, I, I am certain that when you come out in a couple of weeks time for the festival um we're going to be able to do a lot <laughs> yeah yeah because uh, yeah, yeah, we will have a lot around us and we'll have you with us we're going to have lots of fun lots of ideas um lots of different artists who uh will be interested in coming out to see and to work with you and i'm so excited that um we're able to bring you out for the festival Stephen. well i'll just say that my workshops are very different than a lot of other handmade workshops is that what I do is I digitize all the work on the spot and we project it for the rest of the participants. So what they do is they feed off of each other. So as we create this exquisite corpse that gets longer and longer, they are basically reflecting back onto the screen that they're watching, see their work, the next work that they're gonna do, the people around them. So they all flow together throughout, this, throughout the workshop. Mm. In isolation, we all work together, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I can I can personally attest to this because I was lucky enough to take a workshop with you last last summer uh, in Montreal. So that's a, that was a good example of what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. It was so much fun. Yeah. yeah and, and, you know, it's just cool to see what people do and you get to see what everybody does on the moment that they're doing it. And I think that's a really special thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for making the time and, and joining us today. I know nice. I know you're a very very busy person. Oh, that's, that's okay. But listen, I'm really looking forward to my first time in Halifax. I'm sure it's going to be a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, it, it <laughs> will be. Thank you so much. Thanks again for joining us, Steve. Okay, Steven. Bye. Bye.
Let me say again. Sorry, let me try that again. Thank you so much for joining us, Stephen. <laughs> okay, my pleasure. And see y'all in Halifax and uh, and uh, get that Newfoundland screech ready. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do what we can with what we okay. have. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, take care. Okay, you too. Bye. Bye. Stephen's retrospective screening will be held Friday night, May 10th at Carbon Arc Cinema. That's 1747 Summer Street in Halifax. His hands-on direct cinema filmmaking studio workshop will be Saturday at noon. Same place. Space is limited for that, so be sure to register in advance. You've been listening to Banana Fish, the official podcast of AFX, the animation festival of Halifax. AFX is the animation festival where we come together to celebrate the art and the industry of animation. To find out more about AFX, go to anifx.ca. That's anifx.ca. And while you're there, check out everything else Carbon Arc Cinema has to offer. See you next time. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production. 